Market capitalism has proven to be the most consequential problem-solving social technology ever invented. Before 1870, humanity had no chance of baking a sufficiently large economic pie. We have created enough abundance for everyone to live a dignified and stable life, but we still managed to mostly screw it all up. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Goldie, today we get to talk to a really interesting person, uh, the economic historian Brad DeLong, about his new book, Slouching Toward Utopia. You know, it tells basically the economic story of society from the years 1870 to 2010, which he calls the most consequential years of all humanity centuries. Uh, and he's almost certainly correct. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a fascinating tale uh, of economic evolution and the way in which, uh, in particular, markets affected society in, in super profound ways. Right. And I think what's interesting, Nick, is that it is it addresses a tension that you and I have talked about and have written about and are are in the process of writing about. Yeah. And that is the fact. And I think this gets to why to the title of the book, the fact that market capitalism has proven to be the most consequential problem-solving social technology ever invented, that it has lifted billions of people out of poverty and into the developed world that, you know, compared to just, as he says, 1870 is the demarcation line that he uses, we live in what folks then would have thought of as this utopian vision, just yeah. the things we have, the material wealth that we have, the comfort that we have, the freedom that we have, that was not available to the wealthiest yeah. people. Yeah, the inconceivable, right. right? And at the same time, when you look at the 20th century, it is a century of horror in terms of yeah. uh, uh, war and genocide and and the fact that uh, in the process of creating all this material wealth, market capitalism has created just vast inequality right. both between nations and within them. And it is that contradiction that I think is at the at the heart of his book. And we often lose sight of it when we see the horrors that exist in the world today, the wars, the famines, the coming climate catastrophe. It's easy to lose sight of, at the same time, how much better off we are collectively, yeah. even if it's not evenly distributed. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, it, it, the, the book does pose a really interesting question, which is, given that we have created enough abundance on planet Earth for everyone to live a dignified, secure, and stable life, you know, which would have been, again, 200 years ago, inconceivable. 
um, mm -hmm. where almost, by, by the way, with eight times as many people, which would also have been inconceivable, uh, but we still managed with all that abundance to mostly screw it all up. But anyway, let's talk to Brad. I am Brad DeLong, an economics professor at the University of California who does economic history. I was a deputy assistant secretary of the treasury in the Clinton administration. I have been too online, people say, since 1995. And I have been fortunate enough to write a book, Slouching Towards Utopia, The Economic History of the Long 20th Century, that was an instant New York Times bestseller and has now sold about 40,000 copies worldwide, for which I am eternally grateful. 45,002 after me and Nick. So Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Brad, uh, why don't you give us a, you know, a, a, how should we pull it, an abstract of your long and complex new book? Well, I guess let me start with the claim that it really was 1870 that was the hinge of history. That before 1870, you know, humanity had no chance of baking a sufficiently large economic pie for any for everyone to potentially have enough, or even close to enough. But that starting in 1870, humanity really got the engine of technological growth in gear in a way that it hadn't before. That since 1870, we see more technological change in a single year than we saw in 50 years back before 1500 in terms of how rapidly our technologies are making us proportionately better at doing things. And so the prospect of being able to bake a sufficiently large economic pie so that you can have enough by any previous century's definition for everyone, you know, rapidly came into view. And so people began figuring out how should we try to move governance away from being simply, you know, some elite of thugs with spears running a fourth and fraud domination game on the rest of humanity so they could have enough. You know, how could we actually organize society so that we could equitably distribute our forthcoming immense wealth, you know, and use it wisely and well so people felt safe and secure and were healthy and happy. But somehow, over the long 20th century, it has all gone wrong. That the, call it the mode of production, forces of production hardware, has been, as part of this enormous process of onrushing technological change, you know, the mode of production hardware has been completely revised and replaced every generation. And so we've had to write new relations of production and cultural and socio-political software for human society to run on top of the changing ways that we actually work and live. And we have to do this on the fly. And we have not been able to do this terribly successfully, that it is safe to say that when 2010 came around and the long 20th century came to an end, that we really had achieved the you know, wealth beyond the dreams of avarice of previous centuries. We had much more than enough to give what every previous century would have thought of as enough to everyone. And yet the problems of slicing and tasting this immensely large economic pie, equitably distributing it and properly utilizing it, you know, those continue to flummox us more or less completely. Yeah. What were the forces that changed in 1870 that made such a you know, consequential difference? Well, you know, I have a list of up to 
40 things that I'm going yeah. to ask my <laughs> undergraduates to write down on their midterm of, you know, all the things that changed between the start of the Bronze Age and minus 3000 in 1870, you know, from accounting, you're actually writing things down for accountant for accounting on up to, you know, the industrial research laboratory. And, you know, all or at least most of these things were necessary, were needed, and they all were changes in how we thought about nature and science and the institutions we do it and you know, the market economy and the coinage and all other such things. You know, but nothing, you're not even the steam engine and not even the idea that we should be replacing fingers, the fingers of weavers with machines. Not even that was enough to do it, you know, until after 1870. Writing in the early 1870s, you have British polymath John Stuart Mill still saying that all the mechanical inventions to date, you know, have not lightened the toil of a single human being, but only enabled a larger population to lead the same life of drudgery and imprisonment. But come 1870, we kind of get three big things happening. We get the industrial research labs, as we now know them. We get modern corporations, as we know them. And we get the global market economy. And those are enough to push society into a much higher gear of technological innovation and progress, one we managed to maintain for 150 years after 1870. And that those things made all the difference. Yeah, so it was the... Invention of the corporation, the invention yeah. essentially of industrial invention, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, you got to rationalize and routinize. You got to rationalize and routinize a process that before, you know, required that someone have an individual lightning bolt of genius and then frantically go around and try to figure out how to actually use this ingenious insight to make it useful somehow. Yeah. Yeah, you quote Tesla criticizing Edison's process. Mm -hmm. uh, te Tesla really seems to represent more the the modern corporate research lab than Edison, who was just basically uh, yeah throwing everything yeah. at the wall to see what worked. Yeah, but it's only because Tesla was enmeshed in the right social network. You know, put him on his own and the... Uh... Imagine Elon Musk without the charm and social intelligence. Yeah. Um, and you get Nikola Tesla. Um, uh, now, now, that's, that's giving Tesla. Musk too much credit. Because yeah. yes. Tesla was, was just an unusual engineering genius. And Musk is not that. Musk is a smart guy with a very good eye for a solvable problem. You know, but Tesla knew how to make electrons get up and dance mm -hmm. in a way that nobody could understand until a decade later. Yeah. After seeing all of his things work and wondering just how the hell is it possible that this works? Yeah. So your book's named Slouching Toward Utopia. What I'd love you to do is first tell us what you mean by a utopia. I recognize that you're being, you're not being as literal as the word may imply. Uh, and tell us a little bit about why we struggle to have it. So what is a utopia and why do, why do we struggle to have it? Well, at the simplest level, you know, 
someone back, say, in 1600, um, someone like Tommaso de Campanella, who wrote this first utopian book, City of the Sun, or, you know, Francis Bacon, who wrote the second utopian book, The New Atlantis, would say that a utopia is that a utopia here and now is something that is not on a distant island, which we hear about only through travelers' tales, which is what Sir Thomas More's coinage of the word utopia is about. You know, that a utopia is not a past golden age we have lost, and a utopia is not some future theological transformation of the world. You know, when all the veils of flesh fall away and we confront ourselves as the spirits of light that we really are, you know, that a utopia is a place where, as Francis Bacon wrote, where we have engaged in science and technology to push it forward, you know, to the enlarging of human and the human empire, that people will have enough power over nature and enough ability to organize themselves cooperatively, um, that we will no longer be greatly constrained in what we wish to do by what material necessity compels us to do. At the simplest level, it's that we will have a world where, um, unlike the world before 1870, where you know the overwhelming bulk of the people don't spend two or three hours a day really wishing they could eat more calories now, but unable to do so because they have no money and are greatly worried about where their 2,000 calories plus essential nutrients are going to come from next year, next month, even next week. You know, what we do when we actually get to a society of abundance and what kind of abundance is good for us, you know, how we properly slice the economic pie, and then you know how we taste it, how we use our powers to command nature, to manipulate nature, and to organize ourselves in order to accomplish processes that make us feel safe and secure um, and lead us to be happy and healthy. Those are questions that, you know, the Sir Francis Bacons or the Tommaso de Campanellas or even later on the um, Edward Bellamy's, um, say, writing what was perhaps the third best-selling book, you know, in the United, or the fourth best-selling book in the United States in the late 1800s, you know, after the Bible, after Uncle Tom's Cabin, after Ben-Hur, you know, was his utopian novel, very bad utopian novel, looking backward. They all thought the problems of slicing and tasting the pie were much less than the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie. Yeah. And yet, lo and behold, we have baked what every previous century would say is a sufficiently large economic pie, and yet we do not feel as if we are in or even close to a society that is a utopia. As a professor of economics, can I ask you, is our economics up to the task of addressing the this issue of slicing and dicing and distributing? We're pretty good at figuring out what distribution is. We're rather worse at figuring out what a good utilization would be. Uh, elaborate on that, please. Well, you know, we have, especially here at Berkeley, we have an awful lot of people who are tracking the global distribution of wealth and the distribution of wealth within countries quite well, you know, as well as you can possibly track it, especially considering the number of people with lots of wealth who would rather mm -hmm. not have the extent of their wealth known um, or genuinely known. Um, we have a handle on, you know, how we're doing a bad job at distributing what is, in some sense, you know, the project of our common 
social division of labor in which we're all useful, but none of us is really especially essential. And so it's not clear why some of us have so much larger shares you know, than others. But you know, the problems of properly using the wealth, um, they're things that are beyond the scope of economics where we have very, very little to say. So a couple of clarifying questions, because it's such a fascinating conversation. Surely it is true, well, well, certainly we do not have utopias everywhere. Surely it is true that to a certain extent, in some countries in the world, people are li living a relatively utopian existence, right? It would be nice to have a jet copter out and back on top of the hot tub. So if I wanted to go down and visit my um, first cousin Phil in his beachfront house in Malibu, I could just get there in an hour on the spur of the moment. Yeah. Rather than have to schlep off to SFO and, you know, take the whole Michigas of getting yeah. to Malibu now is inconveniently long. And it would be nice if it were much, much, but other than that, it looks pretty good from where I Yeah. Sit. So your, yeah. your world, Nick, is a little more utopian than Brad's world. It is, but the, the life that Goldie, you and Brad live right. is certainly utopian by any reasonable standard. You earn good livings doing extraordinarily uh -huh. interesting consequential work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. So, but would you say that if everyone on planet Earth lived the life that you and Goldie live, would that be a utopia? No, because there still would be killer robots flying over Ukraine looking to kill people. <laughs> You know, there okay, still okay. would be some people, right. there still be some people who would say that the way to persuade the Ukrainians that they are, you know, an, an ethnicity among Russians rather than an independent nation, um, that the way to convince them of this is not to send poets to read the works of Pushkin aloud <laughs> in town squares of Ukraine and say, don't you want to be part of this wonderful civilization, you know, is not to send touring companies of the Bolshoi Ballet. Um, right. to tour Ukraine and dance Swan Lake, you know, um, yeah. um, are you for, are you for unification with Russia or not? It's just, we blow things up first. We ask questions second. Um, we'd have an awful lot of people who would be very upset, you know, because, um, other people who are moochers and slackers have things that they shouldn't, you know, yeah. that George H.W. Bush, right, that, George W. Bush, the second one, started um, this program of let's get the phone companies in the business of giving away free cell phones to people so that we, the government, can save money and communicate with them through the Internet and thus save a bunch of money. And yes, they'll also have the phones and that'll be good for them as well. And lo and behold, come 2010, all of a sudden, this is an Obama phone program. And a huge number of people are tremendously insulted at the idea and think the world is very non-utopian because these people are getting phones for nothing. Yeah. And you know, that, that number of people who are very insulted and angry at this includes, you know, you know Mitt Romney, who is a good man, um, a wonderful manager, perhaps my 53rd favorite senator of the 100 senators there. <laughs> yeah, but after his defeat in the 2012 election, you got this rant about how Obama won because he gave all these undeserving people free stuff and they voted for him. 
and they aren't going to learn the life lessons they need to learn to be productive and happy because they've learned that they can vote for Obama and he will give them free stuff. And that's no way that they should live a life. And this is a bad thing about the world. Okay, but now we're talking about human human nature, right? Well, this this may well be the problem, right? That, <laughs> you know, as Dick Easterlin of U, as Dick Easterlin of USC liked to say, that the history of modern economic growth is not the triumph of um, humanity over material need, but rather the triumph of perceived material needs over humanity. Correct. But isn't it true that some of the economic ideas that we accepted sort of broadly, the orthodox economic thinking, what we generalize as neoliberalism, it has held us back over the last 40 or 50 years? You definitely say so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so mm -hmm. in, in the news, in the news, for example, frankly, to the wonder and delight of many of us, there are provisions within the new legislation the Biden administration has passed, right. uh, you know, right. you know, the CHIPS Act, for example, that provisions which, among other things, require things like childcare uh, for the workers in the factories being built with those workers' tax dollars. And there is this chorus of complaint coming from economists like Jason Furman and so on and so forth, uh, it, suggesting that these provisions will harm the economy. Right, because they're in, they're inefficient. Yeah, that they're bad for the very well, workers. That, that, that industrial policy should somehow be directed only at incentivizing capital. That's right. Yeah, that all the first order benefits of conducting an industrial policy should go to capital that is in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And none of this to labor. To which the response, you know, is Gene Sperling's in 1992, late 1992, that the purpose of the Clinton administration's, you know, policies will be to create an economy that produces good jobs at good wages. Correct. And, you know, mandating child care so that we get actually a bureaucratic infrastructure up to provide it and can take advantage of economies of scale and scope is certainly part of the spurling good jobs and good wages vision. Yeah. But Jason Furman is reflecting pretty accurately the academic economic orthodoxy, is he not? He is channeling. Well, you know, there are, there are, one way to say it is that there has been long a strand of economics that holds the purpose of economics is to maximize your know, production. And that issues of you know, distribution and wealth holding and property and income are the business of politics or maybe of political economy, which is a separate thing and which is kind of non-scientific but a matter of values. While economics is a social science because where your values do not enter into it and we're just in the business of maximizing production. And then there's usually also an appeal to, you know, as John Steinson, professor here, was saying on Monday, to the first welfare theorem, right? That, you know, um, a properly designed market will maximize, you know, a sensible social welfare function. A properly designed market will maximize a, a social welfare function because it will make every single possible win-win arrangement within between people. It will manage to fulfill all of those. So it will leave no wealth on the table. That anything you can do to increase wealth, you know, it will. The problem with the first welfare function is that if you then ask, well, you know, what is the distribution of income? 
that accompanies that wealth maximizing results? You know, will you find that for what society is the social welfare function that you're maximizing, you'll find, well, it's one in which, you know, your weight in society is more or less proportional to your wealth. So that as Amartya Sen used to put it in 1942, the market economy of Bengal was maximizing the value of production. But because there were a bunch of workers who had no income and no assets, and hence no ability to register their demands on the market at all, you know, two million people starved to death. You know, and they starved to death because given the turmoil caused by World War II, there was no productive work they could do. And so the fact that they did not have jobs did not reduce production. And carrying the food to them would have disrupted other, would have taken rail space away from other things that were productive. You know, if you have no income, no wealth, the market economy literally does not care whether you live or die. And if you have only a small income or a small amount of wealth, the market economy cares only very little about whether you live or die. And so the second strand of economics has always been to say, wait a minute, yo, you can't separate out issues of production from issues of distribution this way. You know, you have to look at the whole thing as a package. And aim, say, not for maximizing total production or maximizing average income, but for maximizing something like the geometric mean of income, for maximizing something like the average of the log of people's incomes. And, you know, if you do the first, if you're the first, if you're a maximizing income person, you reach one set of conclusions because your values are already implicitly baked into the cake even with your initial declaration that we're not going to talk about values, we're only going to be talk about maximizing production. That in itself is a move. And, you know, I don't know why Jason is out there, um, because Jason is a guy who cares a lot about the distribution of wealth and income in his full normal persona. I find it all puzzling because I don't know Jason well, but I, I have spent some time with him. And and by the way, I don't mean to pick on Jason. It just why not? You know, Jason why not? can take it. Why not? Yeah, okay, yeah. But, take but it. He's a good dude and a representative of this way of yes. thinking. Yes, yes. Um, yes. It, yes. But you know, the thing is, is that what seems to me is that he is so constrained by this orthodoxy that it leads him to believe things that make no sense. But I mean, you know, for for example, the the principle of marginal product. You know, this is something that he accepts as mm-hmm. as, as true. That people are paid what they are worth, what they produce in the economy. And the problem with that view is that if you take that seriously, you effectively cannot increase people's wages mm-hmm. through policy, right? Like So, for example, the $15 minimum wage thing that we cooked up in Seattle is an abomination within that framework. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it creates dead weight, it creates dead That's weight right. losses. Yeah, because yes. the economy is a Pareto optimal equilibrium, and if you mess with it, you harm welfare for everybody. Blah blah blah. Right. So it 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 makes it effectively impossible to help people. It does. Well, it it focuses on one particular set of dead weight losses rather than another. I think yeah. the way to put it is that we have an idea of what the distribution of wealth should be. And the greatest of all deadweight losses are um, produced by the big deviations of the actual distribution of income and wealth 
from the distribution of income and wealth that corresponds to what people deserve plus what inequalities are needed to incentivize people to work in the proper jobs. Yeah. You know, that you have inequality that arises from those two things, but then there's a whole bunch in addition. And that whole bunch in addition is by far the is by far the greatest market failure of all. That we haven't given social power to the right people to the the, to the right extent. Yeah. But I mean there is you know there is worries that that the money will not be terribly well the not money will not be terribly well spent if we take our eye off the ball. And there also are worries that the programs will be attacked and will kind of diminish our ability to do useful things in the future to the extent that they are not seen as massively successful. Like, for example, the Obama energy industrial policy, things of 2009 to 2012 were, as best as I can tell, enormously successful. Right. And yet, if you go to the average person on the street, A, they haven't heard of them. B, if they have heard of them, all they've heard about is Solyndra from Fox News. Yeah. And this all, you make a bunch of investments and some of them won't turn out so good, is kind of completely foreign to people who've been scared out of their wits you know by fox news something about the same right yeah that like you know i am a pessimist about um handing huge amounts of money to intel in an attempt for intel to undo what a decade of management by financiers did to its community of engineering practice and advance you know i don't think they're going to be able to catch up with psmc or samsung maybe samsung but even then i doubt it but I do think giving Intel a huge, huge metric F ton of money, um, what it will do is it'll keep the pressure, keep, lit on, keep a fire lit under Samsung and TSMC. So they will charge a lot less for the, ch- the chips they will make over the next 15 years than they would otherwise do so. And so it will be of enormous net benefit to the American economy you know, to make this investment and to provide them with this threat even though I don't think Pat Gelsinger will be terribly happy with the state of Intel in 15 years. So what, what's the answer? What, tell us about the glorious future. Uh, if there is one. Yeah. <laughs> it really should be a glorious future, right? There are yeah. now 8 billion of us. And, you know, we are each collectively all very smart. You know, we are each individually quite smart. The fact that any of us can be a janitor... While Google has just completely dismantled its kind of 300-person, let's build robot janitors for work to work inside of Google project, you know, has just completely dismantled it as a total waste of time and money. Well, it's something that any one of us can learn to do in less than a month. Kind of indicates that if we can put ourselves into the right place in the social distribution of labor, and if we can aggregate our thinking. You know, we are a truly mighty and powerful anthology intelligence, you know, because there are now 8 billion of us, rather than the 1 billion or so of, you know, 1820. And because we can communicate much faster and are much better educated, we should be able to think much, 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 much greater thoughts. And so actively achieving a world in which we are not only um, as short of material necessity, but also able to distribute our wealth properly or not too improperly and use it wisely, that should be within our grasp. And it should be more within our grasp in the future as we get richer. And yet we are 30 years later in starting to deal with the fact 
that our carbon dioxide emissions are cooking the planet. You know, we got within one vote of essentially doing what we did last year, but doing it 30 years before with kind of Al Gore in 1993. And one consequence is the monsoon was 400 miles off last year, which was not a happy thing. And, you know, indeed, um, my ancestors three centuries ago would indeed spend two or three hours a day thinking how much they wanted additional calories right now but couldn't have any because they were too poor. You know, and my ancestors 300 years ago were, you know, not my five foot nine and a half, but were five foot six because they'd been stunted in childhood. You know, I'm five foot nine and a half, but I also spend three hours a day thinking about how desperately I want more calories right now. And yet my weight hangs up there at 262 pounds, um, <laughs> even with that, um, precisely because, you know, the, the food system offers me too many tasty things too yes. easy. I haven't figured out how to manage that. And my body has now figured out, you know, hey, you have a sedentary life except for um, walking the dogs. Having extra weight really isn't a problem for you're doing your stuff. And, you know, there might be a famine. Um, there always might be a famine in which those extra 50 pounds will really, really be valuable. I'm going to keep those 50 pounds on no matter how hard you try to get me to take them off. There you go. We have this benevolent dictator question uh, that we often ask people like you. And if you were a benevolent dictator, politics aside, what would you do? What policy would you enact? What economics would you impose to drag the world towards the vision of the future that you prefer? I think on the world scope, the first thing I do is Michael Kremertz say that medical research and development, um, pharma, especially pharmaceutical, should be through prizes, after which everything is open sourced. You know, vaccines, practices, you know, um, techniques and so forth. That the huge, the requirement that everything medical cover its cost is tremendously destructive, disruptive, and harmful. While instead things should be paid out of, out of general tax revenues, and once an idea is invented, it should be, you know, given away and used worldwide. Otherwise... You know, the state of California made a reasonable decision in the 1970s that it shouldn't be giving away an education, especially at a place like Berkeley for free, on the grounds that Berkeley students were going to be relatively rich. And you know, why were we taxing the you know fishermen and the farm workers in order to give them a free, high-quality education? And that was a reasonable thing to do. That was a mistake. Um, that led to a lot of people who ought to have been getting a higher education not getting one. And it led to the growth of a poisonous and ineffective for-profit college um, industry. You know, second thing would be, would be to say, I would go back to Clark Kerr's idea that as much education um, and apprenticeship as you want, you know, the state will pay for on the grounds that Better trained, better educated people are better citizens and also are more productive. And that our big problem is not that people stay in school too long because, you know, it's fun to party on Friday night, but rather that people don't learn enough because there is now so much to learn. 
And if we could once again make education free, I think very quickly we'd find we had a much, much more productive um, citizenry and would find our rate of economic growth back to higher levels than we've seen since 2007. Yeah. Converting uh, education from a private good to a public good again. Yeah. One final question, sir. Why do you do this work? I think so far, at least, the answer is gradient descent. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Look around and what seems to be the thing that would be most fun to do for the next half hour. You know, I've been following that since 1978. And so far, it's Maybe it's led me wrong, um, but not so far, right? Um, it seems to be fun to do, and, you know, it also, I think, helps teaching people and discovering things and teaching people makes me feel very good about myself. And I'm not quite sure where this psychology comes from. Well, this has been fascinating and fantastic. And uh, neither of us are done with your new book, but we're grinding through. Okay, thank you, thank you. And tell me what you think I get wrong with it in it, please. Yeah, well, we have a book coming out quite soon that yes. um, attempts to solve many of these challenges. And we'll be very interested in sharing it with you and getting your feedback. Right. Please send it. I will. Oh, Nick, what a <laughs> what an incredibly broad conversation. Yes. Uh, I come out of it with a lot of regrets because there's a lot of things I wish I had the time to ask him. A lot of topics I wanted to get into and we didn't have a chance. If you're going to do a podcast with Brad on a subject this broad, you need about five hours of podcast uh -huh. to cover it. <laughs> yeah. The question I didn't get into with him that I really, I really would have maybe... Maybe you have some thoughts on this, Nick, is that he draws this this demarcation line at 1870 yeah. and that, you know, clearly we are now I think we are now in a post scarcity world. And by 1870, at least the industrialized countries uh, were in a post Malthusian world. But the bulk of our economics today, our economic orthodoxy has its roots in a 19th century that either predates this 1870 demarcation or the, the theory happens in the decades that follow, but they were not aware that they had passed this demarcation point. They were still living uh, either in a uh, what they believed to be a Malthusian world uh, or they were living in a world of extreme scarcity and did not see that they were on that they were slouching towards utopia and you know it strikes me that much of modern economics is insufficient because it it comes from a world that no longer exists and the other thing that you know we didn't get a chance to really press on is the degree to which the economics profession has held us back mm -hmm. from a utopia and, you know, of course, this is the point of the podcast and what we discuss all the time is it is economic orthodoxy, which has described, you know, basically treats rising inequality as a feature, not a bug. And that, you know, believes that the only thing that matters for economic policy is corporate profits and that the only way you can be sure that capital is being efficiently allocated is if you if you let capitalists decide what to do with it 
right? All, all of those ideas are a product of the minds of economists mm -hmm. and are in many ways hindering uh, the planet's pursuit of what Brad would call a utopia <laughs> where everybody has right. enough and everybody leads a reasonable life. And and for the economists, be clear, we're, we're not implying bad intent. I mean, you no. brought up Jace, Jason Furman. You know, he intends yeah. the best, but let's be clear, yeah. he, he deserves to be criticized, not just because of his public comments on the Biden administration's administration of the of the CHIPS Act. But, you know, this is a guy that is teaching introductory economics courses at Harvard. He's teaching principles of economics, right. econ 10. Um, he's using, you know, the textbook that uses the minimum wage as an example of the supply demand curve and how when you increase wages, it decreases jobs. Right. He is teaching the next generation of economists. He is yeah. part of perpetuating the orthodoxy that has proven incapable of addressing issues of rising and radical inequality, that has proven incapable of uh, addressing the climate crisis, something scientists were pretty confident they saw coming 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. And yeah. we had to dither because there was no, no economic solution to this outside of the market. Yeah. Uh, according to orthodoxy. So, yeah, economists like Jason Furman should be taken to task. Yeah. No, for sure. Anyway, what a fascinating guy. Really interesting book. Well written and fun to read. Yeah. And, and it's a, a great history. J just steps through the 20th century, uh, the, the, the Soviet Union, the rise of fascism, the Great Depression, the things that led up to it, the things, the countries that did it right, the countries that did it wrong. And it's a fascinating, worthwhile read. You can buy it wherever you want. Your local independent bookstore would be a great place. It's slouching towards utopia. And of course, as always, there will be a link in the show notes. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.